The Swithin, Book 2, Episode 11. Welcome to the Swithin. Hey there, this is Scott Tellick, author of The Swithin, the series that retells the real legend of King Arthur and his associates in a series of epic fantasy novels and this very podcast. We're going to continue listening to book two, The Sons of Constance, but just remember, if you ever get tired of listening over several weeks, the entire book is available right now as an ebook and paperback at Amazon and various other online retailers, and the audiobook will be available very soon over at Audible. And you can keep up with all the shocking developments of The Swithin on Facebook, Twitter, and our website. Just search for The Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N. All right, so according to my statistics, listeners for this podcast just increased exponentially. So to all our new listeners, I say welcome and thank you. And to anyone who recommended my podcast to others, I say thank you and you are so sexy. And by the way, new listeners, there is a podcast episode that's a complete synopsis of book one, so that can help catch you up, but it's also not, you know, completely necessary. Also, if you're new to this podcast, the one thing to know is that this series is the actual legend of King Arthur, although where we are in the story, he's not born yet. Most of the King Arthur stuff we see or hear, like the show Merlin or the Guy Ritchie film or stuff like that, is kind of like a remix of the old Arthurian legend, but this series tells the actual legend, and I just flesh it out enough to make it compelling and have it make sense. So by the way, today we begin part two of our book, book two, in which the story kind of resets, and we meet Pendragon and Uther, the sons of Constance of the title, and they're going to be our main characters from now on. Yes, it's odd, but hey, that's what happens when your story was put down a thousand years ago. And that's what I was saying earlier about how these stories don't really follow the expected storylines and beats, which is a good thing. Anyway, I'm in the process of putting the final touches on book three, which is called The Void Place and should be out by mid-December. And today I'm going to tell you a little bit about it because I'm excited about it. Book three ends with the birth of Arthur, the future king and the main character of our series, and it tells the story of how he was born, which ain't pretty and definitely isn't nice. If you've seen the movie Excalibur, this book would be the first ten minutes of that movie, although there's some key differences. And if you've read Lamorte d'Arthur, this is where the story begins. Thus, book three is where most retellings of the Arthurian legend begin, but my series begins a generation before that because I'm just, like, so extra. Now, if you aren't familiar with the story, I don't want to reveal any spoilers, but I will tell you that someone in this book is going to go on to become the father of Arthur in book three. And my telling is a little bit more sci-fi than other tellings, because in the old legend, it's very ambiguous what role Merlin plays in the creation of Arthur. Like, it kind of tries to have it both ways, with Merlin arranging a lot of it, but also being cast as a bit of an innocent bystander when some of the bad things happen. In my version, Merlin explicitly creates Arthur because he needs a human king to carry out his plan to transform Britain. So it's kind of about a demigod who specifically creates a human being. And as we go onward through the saga of King Arthur, we'll see how Arthur likes having his entire life already taken over by another person before he's even born. 
So that's all in the future, because the King Arthur story begins from here. But the other cool thing Book 3 does is introduce a lot of the characters that are going to become major figures in the whole legend going forward, and it sets up a lot of their conflicts. The biggest one most people will recognize is future badass sorceress Morgan Le Fay, who we meet at 10 years old, when she's already showing a pretty creepy, vengeful side. We also meet her sister Margaza, who's going to become the mother of Sir Gawain, one of Arthur's most loyal knights who's with him right up until the end of his life. And Margaza will also eventually give birth to Mordred, who's the man that ultimately delivers the death blow to King Arthur about 60 years after this story happens. In the more immediate future, we meet Kings Lot and Urians, who will resist Arthur's rule and go to war with him in Book 6. One character who's very present but very undeveloped in the original legend is Ulfius, who's in this book and who's Uther's best friend and who I have taken a real liking to. He's going to play a major role in book three, but then go on to have a big adventure with Arthur in book five and also train Arthur in sword fighting and the ways of being a knight. And then we'll then fight alongside him in the wars that happen in book six. We also meet Arthur's adoptive family, Sir and Lady Ector, and their son Kay, who will become one of Arthur's knights. In book three, we meet him as a baby, and he's going to grow up alongside with Arthur and be with Arthur through his entire life, so also into the end of our series. So that's all coming up in book three, and yes, there will be a podcast of it, but we're a long way off from that. The ebook is available for pre-order right now at Amazon for the shockingly low price of 99 cents and will be available come mid-December. And you should go right now and order it, if only to toss a dollar my way. And put a virtual dollar in my tip jar by pre-ordering book three for the in low, low price of 99 cents because I need the money and Arthurian fiction doesn't get written for free. You can find the link in the text portion of this episode or just go to Amazon and search for Scott Telek, T-E-L-E-K, or the Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N. And if you do that, I say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But thank you for listening, too. I appreciate it. All right, so let's get on with our story. Let no time be lost as we meet our title characters, Pendragon and Uther, the sons of Constance. Part 2, Chapter 19. Pendragon and Uther stood side by side as they watched the tower burn. The battle was now over, and had not been nearly as long or difficult as they'd imagined, for as the ships touched the land, many men came forward and laid down their arms, asking to join their army. They said either that they wanted to help reclaim the country from Saxon rule, that they turned against the horrible tyrant Vortigar, or had been faithful servants of Constance or Maine, or both of them, and wanted to help the rightful rulers retake their land. The resisting Saxons, for almost all of those who had resisted their coming had been Saxons, weren't able to put up much of a fight, and the brothers didn't have great trouble moving swiftly inland and securing their territories until they came to the tower. Uther and his friend Ulfius led most of the battle in the valley, what little of it there was, while Pendragon took another group and went straight to the large and imposing tower where they knew Vortigar held. The battle on the open field below the tower had begun in the early afternoon and ended just before sunset, And now they stood, hand in hand, in the valley below the great hill, watching in silent awe as the flames leapt from the small slit windows in the sides of the great tower. Pendragon had encountered almost no resistance as he and his men entered the base and set fire to the stores and supports they had found there. They were able to stay long enough to ensure that the fire was well established before leaving. 
Now as they looked up, they could see the tower as a large black silhouette against the flickering orange light that reflected off the low overhanging clouds, like an illusory vision in the sky. For with the remnants of the battle and the rushing wind all around, they could hear nothing, just see the massively looming tower. Soon a great tearing sound was heard that filled the entire night, and they didn't know what it was until there was a sudden increase of light atop the black looming mass, and flames whirled a hundred feet high, straight up out of the tower, turning and twisting into a great whirling spiral of flame that reached up and burned a hole in the low layer of clouds. It was a grand, imposing sight, and both of them were almost afraid to speak and ruin the close and intimate moment they shared. Pendragon was 22 years old now, but stood a few inches shorter than his brother, who was 20 and the larger, wider, and stronger of the two. Both had beards, brown eyes, and long brown hair that reached Pendragon's shoulders and down to Uther's shoulder blades, but Pendragon's face was more narrow and rested in an expression of friendliness and confidence and could express great thoughtfulness, especially when he was listening to someone. Then he would lean forward and set his soulful gaze ahead steadily, letting the person who was speaking know that his words were being attended to quite carefully and that the man was thoughtfully processing all that he said. It was in part because of this that he gave all who encountered him great confidence in his ability to lead and govern, as well as the fact that he was a direct descendant of the beloved King Constance, since noble lineage was then much more important as a signifier of character than it's considered today. His younger brother, Uther, at 20, was the larger, more headstrong, and hot-headed of the two. His great chest showed incredible strength, and his fearsomeness in battle was well known. His arms, legs, and chest were hairy and virile, and he was always known to be a great devotee of leisure, drinking, and maidens. He always had one or two ladies writing him letters or seeking to take up some of his time, which he generously allotted, being on the whole less in demand and less interested in ruling and official functions than his brother. Where Pendragon could get into hours of speculation about a course of action, turning over this possibility or that, and trying to seek out and address all potential things that could go wrong, Uther usually saw issues with clear rights and wrongs, advantages and drawbacks, and rarely had any trouble making up his mind, or expressing that opinion to Pendragon. Together, with Uther assuming the role of king, and Uther as his most close trust advisor, they made an envious and assured leadership team. They needed no words as they stood, hands clasped tightly, watching the tower burn. This was an auspicious return to the country they had known, and bode well for their future as rulers, imparting the feeling that their luck had turned and now would be with them. The night was wild, and knights on horseback could be seen riding here and there, the amber flame of the burning tower reflected in their metallic surfaces as the sound of pounding hooves filled the air while behind it all the great roar of the flames filled the night sky with overwhelming thunder. This is how Pendragon and Uther returned to their land, and they wasted no time in letting it be known throughout the kingdom that they had returned. When the people learned of their arrival, they were overcome with joy and came out to greet and honor them as their rightful lords. Pendragon was made king, and the primary work ahead of him was to wage war on the Saxons whom Vortiger had allowed into their land, and who held on to their castles they had seized with fierce determination. Over the course of the next year, Uther led the sieges on the great castle that Hanks had holed up in, but was unable to make any progress, held in stalemate and trapped in endless small skirmishes that wore away at supplies and morale on both sides. 
Pendragon met with his advisors and trusted men, many of whom had been an advisor to Vortiger, but had parted from him in the last days and rallied to the side of the brothers. Some of these advisors had been there when Merlin explained to Vortiger about the dragons under the pool inside the hill, and they told him how everything that Merlin had said had come true, and that he was truly the best seer that ever lived. But there are other seers whose advice is very valuable, says Sir Brantius, who nearly fell out of his chair with dismay when he heard that the wizard, who had wedged himself between him and the former king, was now about to be invited to sit at the side of this newest one. And besides, the advice of men who rely on intelligence, experience, and wisdom is of great and certainly more reliable assistance than some gifted child whose wisdom comes from the devil. True, said Roldan, who had also found Pendragon's service, but Merlin knows things that no other man on earth could know, and if you asked him, he said as he turned to the king, he would surely tell you plainly whether Heng's castle can be taken, and exactly how to accomplish it, if so. Brantius opened his mouth and raised his hand to protest, but before he could, the king asked, how do we get in touch with this seer? Pendragon stood, and his fingers pulled at his beard below his chin as his eyes grew deep with ideas of all the advantages that such a powerful sorcerer might afford them. But mostly he could only see the immediate task, which was defeating Hengst and taking his castle. I don't know where he is, said Roldan, but I do know that when anyone talks of him, he's aware of it, and I'm sure he knows very well that we're talking about him right now. He also stood and began pacing, and if you wanted to, and you sent for him, he would surely meet your messengers, for I know that he's in this country. Pendragon smiled, for it seemed that God himself was placing advantages in his path. I'll send for him immediately, he said. Part 2, Chapter 20 Since that time when Merlin had left his small town, Blaze had made his way to Northumberland. He was nervous about making the long trip, just he alone in a hired carriage. At least there was a driver and porter with him, should their carriage get stuck. And he had trouble keeping his nervousness from taking over his heart, rendering him unable to read, as he saw the landscape grow more and more wild, and towns and villages fewer and further between. The journey took several days, and by the last day he was struck with the beauty of the wild canyons, waterfalls, expanses of rolling hills, and vast areas of unexplored forest he was passing through, while also growing less and less confident that they would find any people where they were headed. The carriage took a long, winding climb up a barely demarcated road that ascended the side of a high hill and entered a flat area that jutted out to the side of the slope, filled with huge trees whose thick trunks grew out of a rolling carpet of blue wildflowers. The day was coming to a close and the gloom began to cling to the interior of the trees when, looking out the window, he caught sight of a distant light. Then he saw more, and rounding a curve, the trees and leaves parted to reveal a small cottage, with tharming chest roof and a few windows standing open, the warm light of lamps glowing from within, built on the edge of a hill and looking down on the immense valley that extended below. Merlin was there to open the door for him. The cottage contained a large main room and two smaller rooms, one for each of them. It was bigger than Blaze's hovel on the edge of the forest, but smaller and less comfortable than his place in Maylinda's shelter. Merlin showed Blaze around the place and the surrounding yards where they could get water, where the best views and most beautiful secluded spots were, all the while asking about his journey and if he was in good health. Merlin and Blaze lived comfortably together in that cottage and spent many happy hours there in contemplation and conversation, and working together on Blaze's book, which recounts all the events that you're hearing and those that you have yet to hear, and which is how we still know that these events happened at this time. 
One day they were coming to the close of working for the day, and Merlin said, Alas, I have to go now, but I'll be back before supper time. Then a corridor opened in the air behind him, with two sides and a peaked roof, which extended far beyond the wall of the small chamber. Merlin stepped into it, it closed, and he stepped down on the forest floor just on the southern outskirts of Northumberland, where there was a small tavern on the edge of town. The wizard entered, the door creaking loudly as he opened it, and when it closed behind him, he was in the guise of an old wizened woodsman, looking quite wild and mad in an old dirty tunic that was worn to shreds. His hair was standing out from the sides of his head, with uncombed beard long and unkempt. The messengers Pendragon had sent to find him were eating there, as he very well knew, and as they saw him enter, they lowered their eyes and avoided his sight. "'Don't look. Some wild man from the forest,' said one to another, while they all went on eating, keeping eyes down. But it was too late. Merlin stepped right behind him and leaned down over the largest, letting his long beard hang down to tickle the back of the man's neck. "'You're not doing the work your lord sent you on very well,' he said. The messenger opposite looked at him through lowered eyebrows. They didn't want this guy around, and if he was going to insult them, things might have to get unpleasant.' "'I know that he's ordered you to find the great seer Merlin,' the woodsman said. "'And yet here you sit, filling your bellies.' "'The other men couldn't help but look up when they heard this. "'What do you know about it?' one of them asked. "'Exactly what I've said,' the woodsman replied. "'But if it had been my job to look for him, I would have found him sooner than you.' "'One of the messengers stood and spoke to him. "'Do you know who Merlin is?' he asked. "'Have you ever seen him around here?' "'I've seen him, and I know where he lives,' said the woodsman, "'pulling on his disheveled beard.' He knows very well that you're looking for him, but you'll never find him unless he's willing to be found, he said. And even if you did find him, he wouldn't go with you. But you can tell your lord that he will not be able to take the castle he's besieging until Hangst has died. One of the messengers at the table stood straight up, gazing in wonder at the woodsman, for none of them had mentioned the name of Hangst while they'd been at the tavern, or even amongst themselves for the past several days, and they were amazed to hear it on the woodsman's lips. What else do you know, he asked. I know that five of the king's advisors told you to look for Merlin, but when you go back, you'll find only three, for two have died, the woodsman said. And tell your lord and the three who remain that if they looked for Merlin in these woods, they would find him, but, he raised a finger, if the king himself does not come, he will never find Merlin. Then the wild man of the woods turned, and as he did, he was lost to sight. In the next moment, Merlin was once more at the side of Blaze, and he said, See, I told you I'd be back for dinner. Now what are we having? That's it for today. Join us next week as the story continues. If you get tired of listening over the course of several weeks, the full ebook and paperback of this novel is available over at Amazon and most other online booksellers. The full audiobook will be available, and it might be by the time you listen to this, over at Audible, where you can also find the first book. Just search for the Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N, or Scott Tellick, T-E-L-E-K. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit the Swithin website by searching the same terms. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe or leave a comment or what have you or whatever you want to do, and we will see you next week. Thanks.